You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hey Kevin, how are you going this evening? Yeah, I'm good, Anne. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, it was good to hear the Friday rave as per usual. Uh, how have you been doing? Well, I don't know about you, uh, Kevin, but I've been super busy lately sitting on my behind at home. (laughs) It's one of those paradoxes we're facing at the moment. Yes, the new world. Uh, And I think people, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people working from home in the future because it seems to suit a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. so so here we are in in our bunkers putting on the unemployed workers fight back again. And we both had the pleasure earlier, uh, actually about two weeks ago now, um, to talk to one of the loveliest, I think, uh, economists around. Uh, They do say that the dismal profession produces a whole bunch of professionals who are without empathy, but I think Dr Stephen Hale is one of the most heartfelt economists I've I've met. He's the human face of economics. Yeah, he is. Lovely guy. So we got to have a great conversation with him about what's going on in terms of the government's response to the pandemic at the moment, what they should be doing and what they're not doing enough of. What uh, what I find good about speaking with Stephen is that he actually holds uh, some degree of expertise in what he's talking about. Which is good because, as we state every week, you and I uh, are not economists. We don't hold degrees. But Dr. Stephen Hale, who is a lecturer of economics at the University of Adelaide, does. Yeah, it's lovely to have a real live economist on the show. Shall we uh, uh, get on with an interview with Stephen? Yeah, let's have a listen. It gives me great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Stephen Hale, who is a lecturer at the School of Economics at the University of Adelaide, and I believe also a research scholar at the Global Institute of Sustainable Prosperity. Uh, Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, Stephen. Oh, thanks very much, Anne. It's a pleasure to be on. Oh, it's great for us to have someone who uh, identifies as a proponent of modern monetary theory to help us look at what's going on now, considering that macroeconomics has hit the headlines along with the pandemic virus. And one of the consequences of this dreadful pandemic and the potentially devastating recession which follows along behind it is that ordinary people who, for very good reasons, are not usually interested in economics at all, and why should they have to be uh, to get on with their lives, are being forced to take an interest. Of course, there are hundreds of thousands of people now who are becoming unemployed who never thought they would and who have been uh, taken in down the years by the rhetoric of successive governments about uh, people being unemployed because there's something wrong with them, they're somehow unproductive or not worth hiring, which has always been complete nonsense. There's never been enough jobs. Do you feel like we're in uncharted territory here or does your understanding of macro offer you signposts in what are very uncertain times? Nobody knows uh, in Australia or in many other countries exactly what the next few months hold. We hope, of course, that the pandemic comes under control and we can begin to unlock uh, the economy again. And there's also uncertainty in terms of how our government is going to respond to the economic consequences of this virus as it goes ahead. There's an interesting situation evolving with the Morrison government where they're having trouble identifying who's unemployed more than others. There's the existing unemployed who are on New Start, and it's been said for years that it's inadequate. So then now there's new unemployed who have lost their jobs due to coronavirus, and they're on New Start, but New Start's been doubled because it's been recognised that it's too small to live on. Uh, And now we have this new job seeker allowance up to $1,500 a fortnight. It seems that the Morrison government 
classifies unemployed in at different levels, uh, yet they're all in the same boat. They have no job and they need to find a way to live. Is there a class system being imposed here? There's always been a class system. It's not being set up. It's been perpetuated. What you do about a downturn like this, there's a lot of ways of uh, cracking an egg. You can help people with cash coming into their bank accounts, or you can help people by limiting the amount of cash going out of their bank accounts. And the, the more of one of those things you do, the less of the other. There's not one prescribed answer. But what I would have done for people who were in employment is I would have kept them in employment, even on furlough, whenever possible, because for people who are both employed or unemployed, we we do want to have a functioning economy there when we recover from this. And the more businesses that you can keep afloat and the more people that you can keep in an ongoing relationship with their employer so that they can go back into the workplace when it's safe to do so, the better. So the first thing I would have done, and I would have done this well before, roughly the time when the British government did it, I would have nationalised payroll for furloughed workers. Uh, There wouldn't have been these queues at Centrelink. The system would not have gone down and there would not have been a jump in unemployment. In the UK, they're paying, I think it's 80% of the wages of furloughed workers. If you're still at work, hopefully you'll be being paid 100%. If you are at home, you're being paid 80% of your wages. You're not classified as unemployed. You're still classified as being employed by the employer you had before. If you become unemployed, there is a much greater risk that you will not get your old job back again. It's important to maintain those relationships if we possibly can. If that's what the government is planning to do, and if they are also planning to include people who were casuals or self-employed or freelancers, as long as there are cast iron mechanisms in place to ensure that people actually get the money. There's no way that businesses can rot the scheme. As long as that's the case, I'll say, well done, you should have done it before. It's a bit late now. Idiots, that's why we had those queues and everybody was so stressed out. You didn't need for that to happen at all. We could have completely avoided that if you just got on the phone to Boris and said, what are you doing, Boris? Maybe we should do the same thing. I think that's an amazing point that you're making is what could have been prevented. I was certainly sitting there thinking, oh, here it comes and here it happens, but hadn't quite seen that it could have been prevented. It's such a difficult set of circumstances. I don't want to be too harsh. And I am usually harsh on the present government. You know, we at least have to say, this is quite difficult. Now, on top of that, I would have increased what used to be called New Start by rather more than it has been. I would have obviously eliminated uh, immediately and clearly all uh, mutual obligations on people to claim that payment. I would also be looking to bring self-employed freelance people into the package as well. But I think the important thing at the moment is to provide economic security to everybody, to act decisively as far as mortgage interest payments and rental payments are concerned as well, basically to stop collecting taxes temporarily. And if you get some things wrong by overdoing it, by being overly generous to some people, dealing with that later. I've noticed that the government's support packages seem to be framed through the lens of businesses. So even when they're talking about support packages for workers, that's mainly to keep them connected to the business so that when the crisis is over, that business can respond quickly, or that if they're supplying income support to uh, unemployed workers, that's so that they can pay their rent, which will Uh, make sure the landlords are receiving rental income so that they can keep uh, paying the bank their mortgages. Uh, The the target seems to be up the chain and they don't seem to be very focused on ordinary workers as such other than an instrument of uh, the supply side of the economy. Would you agree with that assessment? I think that's fair enough. I think they've, uh, they've used the wrong frame throughout, which is partly why they've done things too little and too late. It's the reason why we had those long queues outside Centrelink, which 
didn't, in my opinion, didn't need to happen. Yes, the focus should be, first of all, on individuals and the more vulnerable the individuals, the more the focus should be on them. That doesn't mean that I, I don't think it's important to keep small businesses, but also most of our large businesses going as well, because after all this, people will want to go back, most of them, to the jobs that they were working in before. And we'll want to be able to go and buy the goods and services we bought before. But in the short term, yes, the emphasis should be first and foremost on making sure that nobody feels at risk of losing their home. Nobody feels at risk of being unable to obtain the necessities which they need to um, continue to have a decent quality of life. Everybody has enough income to have that economic security. And then you start thinking about those other institutions as well. Myself, I would have suspended all mortgage payments for six months. I would have given the Reserve Bank responsibility for talking to the private banks and dealing with the the consequences which that would cause across our financial system. I don't think it should be the case that uh, the government or the bank should be providing loans at the moment. I think grants are what's needed, not loans. We don't need more private debt building up in the system. Yeah, you go up the chain, it's bottom up, it's not top down. These people who are sitting at their computers in Canberra managing the economy, like how fine-tuned can that be? It can't be very fine-tuned. They've just announced uh, $1,500 every two weeks for 6 million people for six months. It's called the JobKeeper Payment. How did they come up with that? They will have looked at uh, all the data that's available to them, but they've model of the economy, which we don't have much respect for anyway, is of even less use to them at the moment than it would normally be. So it's really just partly an educated guess. And also partly it's always likely to be a little bit on the low side and not generous enough and too late because they're always being held back by their ideological baggage, which is the, gosh, this is a shocking thing to do. We wouldn't normally dream of doing this. It goes against everything we believe in. Oh, I suppose we've got to. That's their view. Now, I think if you came into this thinking it's the role of the government to stabilise the economy and to ensure people have a good quality of life where people are, as I was saying earlier, safe and secure in their homes and they can meet their basic needs, then an announcement like this may be a tiny bit more generous than this announcement and perhaps a bit broader than this announcement you would have made weeks ago. On the face of it, this doesn't look like a terrible package that they're announcing at the moment, but I haven't seen the details yet, so I might be speaking ahead of myself. But they are moving in the right direction, it appears. What we have to be very careful about is they don't let people fall through the cracks. CR Community Radio, 855 AM. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. Yes, this is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. The Hip Sister Hop Show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy.
was uh, Chasing Stars by the band I'm featuring this week called Alice Ivy. Great band. I'll play another one of their songs later on. Uh, but now let's continue our conversation with Dr. Stephen Hale. What we're seeing is that the current economic settings uh, leave a lot of people in a very vulnerable position should a crisis such as the one that uh, we're experiencing at the moment uh, hit us. And, and there'll, there'll be other crises. There'll be other economic downturns and, and maybe another health scare of some sort. Is this a good opportunity to change some of the fundamental settings that we have in our economy? Well, the simplest thing you could do, which is what I think we should be doing as we emerge from this crisis, and they should be planning for it and discussing it now, but I don't think it will happen under the present government. And sadly, I don't think it would have happened if Anthony Albanese had been Prime Minister either, is that we should be introducing a federal job guarantee. You know, Kevin, when you say job guarantee... You really should say it like this. Introducing the amazing, the sensational, the spectacular, counter-cyclical, incontrovertible, anti-inflationary job guarantee. So to explain the job guarantee, uh, uh, it's a program run by the government to absorb unemployment from the private sector, where the government would provide a range of paid activity, full-time employment, at a basic minimum wage. So it's not competing with the private sector, but it guarantees that anybody who wants work uh, will have work, and therefore guarantees some security uh, through having a job. Now, if we had gone into the current crisis with a federal job guarantee where you had the right to join that job guarantee program, then people would have known that if they're in a position where their job's under threat or they lose their job, they would have known that they could join that program with a guaranteed level of income and superannuation and the other benefits of being employed. And once it was unsafe, for some of the activities within the job guarantee to continue, then people would, yeah, sure, they would have been at home, but they would have still been paid the job guarantee wage. We would have some people working in the job guarantee at the moment if it existed, because we'd have people doing things like uh, making food deliveries to the elderly and supporting people in the home. So there would have been jobs in a job guarantee at the moment. There wouldn't have been enough to employ everybody who would have been part of the scheme right now. But I think a lot of people would have been paid in the job guarantee to stay at home. That's not a UBI. As it becomes safe to go back to work, if you wanted to stay in the program, you would have had to turn up and do one of the tasks which is available locally within your job guarantee. Well, credit where credit is due because the government is engaged in a lot of activity that it criticised the previous Labour government for uh, for doing when it um, uh, found itself with the global financial crisis. This is a government that believes in the private sector and believes that government should only become involved in the economy at arm's length. And it's reversing a lot of its ideology uh, to, to handle this, this crisis. But uh, the conversation saying how all this government spending was going to, to be a millstone around the future generations who are going to have to pay interest on the money that was being spent, that's a false understanding of the economy and they were either lying or they were being ignorant surely that conversation now has to end that discussion should have ended years ago misperceptions fallacies sometimes downright lies by people who know better have in a variety of ways distorted policy making in australia for years why are people unemployed because there's not enough jobs it's not the fault of the people that are unemployed, the misperception that everybody could get a job if only they had enough skills uh, and tried hard enough, and if we're punitive enough as far as the unemployed is concerned, then they'll all be able to get jobs. The worst one, of course, the, the most pernicious myth of all is this myth that the federal government's budget has something in common with yours and mine. And they get everything wrong there. So they talk as though government budget deficits are unsustainable when it's precisely the other way around. Government budget surpluses 
are unsustainable. They vacuum up dollars from the economy, force the private sector into debt or force the economy to shrink and force lots of people into unemployment because there aren't enough jobs. A government deficit, as we know, is a private surplus. But the reason why they've been so slow and also so unambitious in terms of cushioning the economic impact of the virus in Australia is because of that last myth. They still have this view that if we do more deficit spending now, we're going to be building up a terrible burden for future generations. It will mean that we can't have as many teachers, we can't have as many doctors and nurses in the future because we've spent all the money now. So what we need to do is have the minimum support package just to stop things going completely catastrophic at the moment and then hope this doesn't go on too long. That's entirely wrong. That spending that they're doing at the moment, it's not creating a burden for future generations. It's just increasing the net money supply when people in the private sector households need more money because their income's collapsed. The government, every time it spends a dollar, is creating dollars. And some of them, they tax back offers. But the rest, down the years, they got into the habit of offering us term deposits in return for, which is what government bonds are, just term deposits at the Reserve Bank. They don't have to do that particularly. It doesn't make the government spending any less inflationary because for you and me, those term deposits are still wealth. I was going to ask you about another part of the spending that's going on. But it seems like there was a, a $90 billion number attached to some little trick that the RBA pulled recently. And I was wondering if you could tell us if that is what has been called quantitative easing. And if it is, what's the point of it? Part of it's quantitative easing. What the Reserve Bank of Australia is doing is they are buying um, government bonds, actually not just federal government bonds. They're buying some state government debt as well from the private sector, including from the banks. That does put um, additional reserves into private banks' accounts at the RBA. So it increases something called base money. Base money is the currency that we carry around with us, plus the reserves that the private banks have uh, at the RBA. So yeah, the base money or the monetary base is increasing. Banks' reserves at the RBA are going up. And economists would say the Reserve Bank's balance sheet is expanding. Basically, the Reserve Bank is creating electronic money, as it can do, of course, at will, just using the computer to buy government bonds from the private sector. Now, people might imagine that this is a free gift of money to the banks. It isn't really. It's an asset swap. The banks used to own government bonds which were an asset that they got interest on. The banks now have more exchange settlement account balances at the Reserve Bank. Guess what? That's another asset. They get interest on that too. Not very much. They're only getting 0.1 of a percent per annum. And what the RBA is doing is not undertaking a fixed amount of this every day, as some other central banks have done down the years when they've pursued similar policies of quantitative easing. Instead, they've decided to target a particular interest rate. That is the interest rate on three-year Commonwealth government debt. If the RBA buys enough government bonds, and there's no limit to its ability to buy government bonds, then it pushes the prices of government bonds up. That pushes the interest rate on government bonds down. And consequently, they set themselves a target on, I think it was the 18th of March, to reduce the interest rate on three-year government bonds down to 0.25%, which is also the official cash rate, which is a rate at which private banks lend to each other. Basically, what they're doing by saying this is the official interest rate is a quarter of a percent, and they're trying to tell everybody it's going to stay there for at least three years. So they're putting downward pressure on longer-term interest rates, that might help people a little bit with mortgages. Particularly, it helps businesses to raise money if it reduces uh, the interest rate on corporate debt. It doesn't do very much. So I guess the end of the story is, sure, it's quantitative easing. Um, it's not free money for banks. And from an MMT perspective, what's it going to achieve? Virtually nothing. 
So what you're describing is, if I've got this right, is what's called monetary policy when you're looking at what the banks are doing with the bonds. That's right. Monetary policy is to do with interest rates, yeah. At the moment, that does nothing really to help. Josh Frydenberg is in charge. The Reserve Bank can do nothing. So we're opposing fiscal policy and monetary policy here. And I have to admit, when I first got into trying to understand it all, is I thought they were synonyms. And I got so confused trying to figure out, are we saying fiscal policy is good? Are we saying monetary policy is not useful? And I think it's a really important thing for people to understand that when you're reading the media and you see that word fiscal and you see that word monetary, they're actually two very different things. And I think it's pretty much only modern monetary theory that's really understanding the capacity of fiscal policy given the currency issuing capacity of the government. Well, the RBA can encourage people and businesses to go into debt, but those people and businesses then have to pay the debt back. That's about as much as the RBA can do. By lowering interest rates. That's right, and doing other things too. The government, subject to parliamentary authority is the only institution which if you like you could say can give money away can deficit spend we say can add to the net financial assets of the private sector but what we're saying there really is they can give you money that's not been borrowed into existence by you or anyone else in the private sector and doesn't have to be paid back so the government is in a much stronger position to influence economic activity than the reserve bank of australia is It's not the RBA and Philip Lowe um, that you need to look at to save you. Sadly, maybe, it's Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison. They are the ones in charge. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australian make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. You're listening to 3CR, Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Dr. Stephen Hale, who's a lecturer in economics at the University of Adelaide. So let's continue with that interview. So the federal government is in a much better position to alter the dynamics of the current situation than, say, the RBA. Uh, It's not about adjusting interest rates. It's about creating currency and spending it into existence. My thought has been that the best way to stimulate the economy would be to direct that currency creation towards ordinary Australians uh, so that they can spend and therefore support business through uh, spending activity. And my criticism of the government at the moment is that it's viewing the support packages through the lens of business when it should be looking at ordinary working Australians Under normal circumstances, I would agree with you 100%. So if it was 2008, I would agree with you 100%. Don't bail out the banks, don't bail out the businesses, bail out the households. If it was 1929, I would agree with you 100%. Even if it was 1991, 92, I would agree with you 100%. This is very different to any of those occasions. This is not primarily, first and foremost, an economic crisis. It's a healthcare crisis. Uh, It has an immense impact on the supply side of our economy. So I agree with you that the first people they should be giving money to is households. And when I was talking about a wage guarantee earlier on, uh, the biggest role that businesses ought to have had in that is basically just been intermediaries to pass the money on. It's no question of 
the cash staying in the businesses. It's just a matter of maintaining the relationship between households and businesses. But at the moment, um, really, we don't really want people to spend a lot because businesses are shut. You can't go and buy a new car, or at least um, that's not an activity which uh, could be maintained for very long in the future. There's large parts of the economy which uh, every day, more and more, as I, if I go into Adelaide now, it just looks like Christmas Day. There's no one around. There's nothing to buy. So what we want at the moment is plenty of stuff so that you can find what you need when you go into the supermarket. You not worrying about your rent, you having enough income so that you can be secure. We, You shouldn't have to worry at the moment about paying for your internet connection. I mean, if it's not going to be free, everybody needs to have enough money so that they can pay for it. Just at the moment, we are genuinely, we are in a one in a hundred year crisis. It's not a lack of demand in the economy or it, or it's not only a lack of demand, it's a lack of demand and it's a large chunk, I couldn't tell you what proportion, of supply has disappeared. Often when I'm discussing currency creation with people and I explain to them that the government has an unlimited capacity to create currency on demand, they tell me that you can't just print money, that it's inflationary, that you'll cause hyperinflation. Under the current circumstances, we've seen the government create hundreds of billions of dollars of new currency. Can you explain what effect that might have on inflation People normally talk about property price inflation, don't they? Although uh, property prices themselves are not included in the CPI. Property prices are going to absolutely tank in the next few months. There is going to be a, a property market crash. It's not about stimulating an economy and potentially causing inflation. It's about stopping the economy imploding. That's what they're trying to do at the moment. I don't think that inflation is going to be a significant issue. I mean, if it is in a year's time, then we'll deal with it in a year's time. But there's no reason to expect that at the moment. And the thing people have to be uh, careful about is this simplistic nonsense. The idea that uh, Milton Friedman's quantity theory of money has anything useful to say to us. In Japan, the money supply has expanded hugely in the last 25 years. And they've struggled to avoid prices falling. There is no simple link there. There is a link between total spending by everyone, not just the government, and inflationary pressures. But there's no simple link between the amount of money in the system and inflationary pressures. The quantity theory of money is a fallacy, in other words. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. That was uh, Get Me a Drink from Alice Ivy, great local band. I saw uh, Alice Ivy play at a, a little festival, the Lockout Music Festival, last November. I think it's coming up again this year. Uh, and that was the first time they really came to my attention. Great, great local band. There's so many great local bands around Melbourne. just blows my mind. Anyway, look, uh, this week we are interviewing Dr. Stephen Hale, who lectures at the Adelaide University in economics. Uh, and he's giving us the rundown on the current economic situation. You did mention this idea of when we come out of the locked economy. And what I've been trying to get my head around is understanding what is this hibernation versus what is a recession versus what is a depression and in what way are we able to be proactive around this? I think the terms recession and depression are almost meaningless under current circumstances. People in the media, they've got used to talking about the economy being in recession when it contracts two quarters running. Right. That means six months, doesn't it? That's right. It's distorted economic policy in Australia down the years because any time in Australia that you get one quarter where GDP, gross domestic product, the economy shrinks, uh, everybody panics. 
to try and make sure it doesn't happen the following quarter so that there's not a recession so that they can still go on saying we haven't had a recession since 1992 aren't we brilliant who cares about the precise definition of a recession it doesn't matter sometimes people talk about when the economy shrinks 10% it's a depression i don't care about that either what's important is supporting and protecting ordinary people and in the next 3 to 6 months whatever statistic the australian bureau of statistics come out with in the end for what the economy's gross domestic product was i don't care fling it away in the bin i'm not interested all i'm interested in at the moment is making sure that people have enough income to get by that people don't have the stress of not being able to afford basic necessities or being worried that at some point they won't be able to pay their rent or their mortgage that's all that matters at the moment i often hear within the mmt circles that gdp or gross domestic product and the growth thereof is not a great measure anyway for how um we might want to measure how well an economy is serving us so i was just surprised to see that all of a sudden there's a lot of fixation around what the gdp is doing and you're saying that it's not the main game well i'm saying that it shouldn't be it shouldn't be under normal circumstances because gross domestic product when the national income statistics were originally put together during the second world war uh it wasn't supposed to be a measure of well-being it was supposed to be a measure of the market value of all the goods and services that have been produced it is normal for people to fixate on gdp orthodox economists even though they know in the back of their minds that gross domestic product is not the same thing as well-being uh they're obsessed with gdp gdp affects policies in australia in a variety of ways one of the reasons why we have a government that's so keen on large amounts of skilled migration year after year after year including me in the year 2000 when i came over is that one way to keep an economy like australia's from shrinking so you can keep boasting about how you haven't had a recession is to have more and more australians but all this at the moment as i said is essentially irrelevant what's important at the moment is leaving no one behind and then it's up to the government to focus on supply chains of basic necessities to ensure that there is sufficient supply of what we need in the shops and we can maintain a reasonable quality of life i think that coming out of the crisis is not going to be as difficult as a lot of people imagine it to be as long as the crisis itself is well enough managed i think that it's something that will happen gradually and i think we can manage a return to i won't say to normal because ideally we shouldn't be going back to what we had before the australian economy has run on deficits uh, i i don't know much prior to uh, world war 2 but certainly in the post uh, world war 2 economy uh, deficits underwrite the expansion of the australian economy uh, some of the largest deficits we had were post world war 2 with menzies during very conservative times uh, and yet there's all this um, fear of of running up deficits when it seems to be the foundation of our economy budget surpluses that are unsustainable budget surpluses are vacuum cleaners they just destroy dollars um they either drive the private sector into debt or drive the economy into recession or both paul keating surplus drive the econ- drove the economy into recession in the early 1990s the howard costello budget surpluses drove the private sector into debt that's why we have three times as much household debt as we used to do because if the government is taking dollars out of the system the, in order to support the economy if you don't have a huge trade surplus the private sector has to borrow bill clinton surpluses uh, in the us um led to well a stock market bubble and crash then a property market bubble and crash then the global financial crisis its surpluses because they drain say financial assets from the private sector which are unsustainable uh government deficits most countries most of the time in the case of the US nearly all the time run government budget deficits there's nothing to be scared about them they do not place a burden on future generations future generations of australians will be able to consume what future generations of australians produce i've been listening to some commentary from a variety of journalists including ben altham on 3rr uh, with amy mullins on uh, un- uncommon sense it's a it's a great show i i love 3rr uh, but they they're a progressive radio station uh, with alternative views and they're still tied down in this whole 
concept that um, well, Ben Eltham said that uh, Australia was going to be borrowing money over from overseas at a low interest rate to pay for these um, support packages. And I've heard uh, George Megalogenius t- uh, say similar things where we're going to be paying back this debt for years. Um, They've got no idea what they're talking about. They're, they are very able people. They're very intelligent people. But you know, if I started talking about you know, brain surgery, I wouldn't have any idea what I was talking about. I'm not an idiot, but I, I wouldn't have done the hard yards of uh, looking in detail. And they haven't looked in detail at how monetary systems like ours work. They haven't looked at the nitty gritty like people like Bill Mitchell and Warren Mosler and Stephanie Kelton and Scott Fulwiler and Randy Ray and Pavlina Cherneva and the other modern monetary theory economists, and they're just plain wrong. Sometimes the majority of people are wrong. Uh, in the 1950s, the, major- the majority of geoscientists did not believe in plate tectonics. They all do now. So things change in the end, but it takes a long time. Three CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Given that this is a global issue and economies are to some extent interrelated, do you have any sense of how effectively Australia can insulate itself from whatever might be happening in other countries? In terms of uh, supply chains, it will be interesting to see in the next few weeks and months what happens to the supply of those basic necessities which we import. And we're in a good position as far as food is concerned. There's no reason why international trade shouldn't take place. The planes are not flying, but the ships are, are still moving and delivering stuff at the moment. There are things which we import in Australia. It will be interesting to see in the months to come what happens to the supply of those. Further down the track, there are a variety of things which have been the result of neoliberalism and globalisation in recent decades, which we ought to have a look at again. One of them is very complicated and fragile international supply chains. The long and complicated supply chains. So I'm just imagining like, say, we import a dress. And does that mean like the zipper came from one country and the buttons came from another country and a third country put it all together or something like that? Yeah, well, products can be designed in one country. Some of those components can come from country two, other components from country three. They can end up being partially assembled in country four. The final uh, stages in the production process can happen somewhere else. Transport costs with containerization are so low that the savings that you can make in terms of labor costs by moving things to the places in the world where it's cheapest to do them and moving other things to where there are um, suitable subcontractors that you can work with and suppliers that you can work with are such. For multinationals, they can save money as far as they're concerned. Of course, the ecological costs of that are astronomical. It does mean that when there's a crisis like this, it puts at risk the ability of businesses to supply the goods and services which people want to consume. So we'll want to take a look at that. Something else which we need to take a big look at again, is all the privatisation and deregulation, but especially the gig economy and casualization, which has meant that there are so many millions of people who are very vulnerable to any kind of shock, especially one like this, where they're bearing the risks themselves and they're the least able to bear these risks rather than employers, other institutions that are better placed to bear the risks. So the risk that suddenly the business can no longer function is borne by the individual who suddenly finds themselves without sick leave or something like that. Absolutely. One way of mitigating that, if you don't want to unravel everything, is is to, as we were mentioning before, have a federal job guarantee. Stephen, I realise that you are an economist, but I'm hoping there's a little bit of the activist in you as well. And I'm thinking about all the people who've got so much more time on their hands who are hopefully got a roof over their heads and hopefully also with a good internet connection. 
So I'm just wondering what one or two or three things might you suggest for people to while away the time with, especially in terms of becoming informed about these economic and policy issues that are facing us? Uh, I would recommend, if I had to pick out two people that I would be paying attention to at the moment, at the global level, uh, I'd be paying attention to Stephanie Kelton, who has a book called The Deficit Myth, which is coming out in June. She really knows what she's talking about and is a great communicator. And locally, just before this interview, I was midway through watching a podcast where Alan Kohler, who people may be familiar with from ABC News, where he does the finance every night, interviewing Bill Mitchell, the leading modern monetary theory economist, certainly in Australia, and one of the leading modern monetary theory economists for sure in the world, and one of the founders of uh, MMT. Follow uh, what Bill Mitchell has to say, including on his blog, Billy Blog. Uh, look up Gabrielle Bond, maybe on Facebook, if you're on Facebook in, in Adelaide, but you don't need to be in Adelaide to follow this. She's organising the Just Transitions Action Group in Adelaide, and we are going to have uh, Lachlan McCall, who is a uh, an economist in Canberra, but also very well connected to leading trade unionists in Australia, and uh, I think one day is going to be an ALP Prime Minister. So you could look up that. Find out as much as you can about modern monetary theory because one of the things that this crisis has demonstrated to everybody is that the way in which mainstream economists, including those that advise our government, have described our monetary system for years and years is incorrect. And as a matter of fact, the way in which modern monetary theory describes our monetary system is precisely correct. And people like Stephanie Kelton, Bill Mitchell, Randall Ray, Warren Mosler, Fadel Kaboob, Scott Fulweiler, and others who I have not mentioned, all the work they've been doing down the years in terms of uh, describing the freedom of action that governments like the Australian government have to use fiscal policy in pursuit of the public good has been 100% vindicated by recent experience. So I'd be finding out all I could about modern monetary theory. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Well, Anne, we've uh, come to the end of the show. It's uh, It's been great hearing from Dr Stephen Hale. He's certainly a big fan of the job guarantee. The job guarantee, yeah. You can't just say job guarantee. <laughs> Yes, it's pretty much the only way to get to full employment. Yeah, and that's a way of fixing some of those structural problems in the economy that existed before the coronavirus. There was also a lot of talk about uh, bonds and quantitative easing. Uh, this stuff does my head in. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have trouble getting across this one as well. Yeah, I think the reason is because they're irrelevant. Bonds uh, have to do with with monetary policy had to do with uh, interest rates. Uh, they have nothing to do with government spending. Uh, and it's a, it's an historical approach to uh, the current situation, which is redundant. It, it, it doesn't have any purpose anymore to talk about how bonds are going to create government debt. They're two separate things. Well, there's a couple of ideas in there. One of them is this idea that our children and our children's children and our children's children's children are going to be burdened with this impossible debt. And if you say that, I think that's about the intellectual equivalent of worrying about falling off the edge of the earth as you head towards the horizon. It has absolutely no validity uh, in the reality of what's happening. If you hear a politician or a journalist talking about the interest that we're going to have to pay back due to government bonds, it's bullshit. Call them out. Just say you don't know what you're talking about. We've got qualified economists who are saying this is nonsense. The problem is that the government spending is technically, it is technically correct to call it a debt. But but the reality is that uh, it doesn't owe anybody anything. Uh, it creates its own currency. So the, the term debt is a technical term that means nothing. There's no debt to repay. But the thing is that the government has a different relationship to debt from all other players in the economy. But the government can have a debt. And if it's issued in Australian dollars, it can always pay it back. So the Australian government can have a deficit 
and it can have a debt, which is simply the cumulative deficits over the years, but it can always pay it back. So its relation to debt is like um, a bit of a yawn, really. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it has a debt to itself, and it also creates its own currency. So it says, uh, I'm in debt. Um, hey, RBA, can you print me up some currency and square me off and away you go. That's 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 about the long and short of it, yeah? Exactly. Yeah, so that's the other confusing part. So we've got this word debt and then we've also got this word bonds and what's that all about because the government is madly selling and buying bonds at the moment. And as you say, it's a bit of a an anachronism. It's a bit of a holdover from an old way of doing things when we were in a different monetary system. And now that we've got the monetary system that we do, uh, this buying and selling of bonds uh, relates only really to uh, the effect on interest rates, as Stephen said. The thing I take from this, Anne, is that uh, next time you hear a journalist or an economist or a politician saying, uh, this is going to be a, a debt that we're going to be paying for years, just yell back, bullshit. And if they say that your taxes are going to be paying for this, you need to scream back again, bullshit, because it's all nonsense. <laughs> It's it's just nonsense. Hey, yeah, exactly. um, uh, we had a bit of a chat with somebody during the week who might be making it to the next show, uh, Anne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, I don't know, should we reveal all at this point? <laughs> of course. We, we spoke to Bill Mitchell. Cool. We spoke to Bill. We got Bill on on the show. He, he's so uh, generous with his time that we, we got to have a great chat with him. And so I'm looking really looking forward to hearing that one. Yeah, so that's in two weeks' time. We'll have a, a show uh, with Bill Mitchell. Um, he is the, uh, the the guru of um, of modern day macroeconomics. The the uh, one of the founding members of a modern monetary theory. So he'll be up next week. Um, but next show coming up is Mafalda. So we need to get out of here so that uh, Mafalda can have her time. See you later, Anne. Catch you in two weeks' time. See you, Kevin. Look forward to it. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was uh, very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you're having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but uh, I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did. I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I'm the bigger on the corner